If you have a Bible with you, please open it to John chapter 10. What do you think of when you think of a shepherd? It's kind of a difficult question because I think that most of us don't ever think of shepherds. It's not something that we use or we have around our culture now. At this time of year, uh, you likely think of them as something of insignificance or poor or lowly, not just because of the gospel accounts in Luke, which we will be reading in subsequent weeks, but, but also because of songs. Now, make a very clear note. I am not suggesting that anyone sing any Christmas song before we get to Thanksgiving. That is what the Bible calls an abomination, okay? There is a season for it, and we will get there in due time. Be patient for that, people. But in our songs of Christmas, we sing things like the first Noel, the angels did say, was to certain poor shepherds in fields as they lay, in fields where they lay keeping their sheep on a cold winter's night that was so deep. We have a picture of shepherds as poor, as lowly, as being exposed to the cold and outside. In pictures, we get something of a different picture than that, though. When we have pictures of, of, let's say, Jesus carrying a sheep, which are common, he is often sparklingly clean, as is the sheep, who is very, very fluffy and very cute looking. And so we have this picture of, of gentleness and of peace and of comfort, tell you the truth, it's probably less like that and more like the cowboys in the Old West without the guns and the sarsaparilla, but nevertheless, they were probably very dirty people, very rough people. Uh, they They were this way because of the nature of their job. They were out and they were exposed and they had a hard life. What does it mean for us then to picture a shepherd? What should we think about? As Jesus has been going through this metaphor, we come to verse 11, which we read part of last week, and we will focus on this week. He gives us the very definition of what the good shepherd does. The good shepherd, he says in verse 11, lays down his life for the sheep. Given that Jesus is going to say that greater love has no one than this, than someone laid down his life for his friends in just a couple of chapters here, we can have explained for us very clearly that the good shepherd is one who loves his sheep. So today, as we come to these verses, let us listen closely to see what Jesus tells us a good shepherd and his love looks like. Read with me, if you would, in John 10, verses 11 through 21. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, He has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of one who is a oppressed by a demon? Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? This is indeed the word of our God. 
what is the love of Jesus like? What is his love like as a shepherd? The first thing I would tell you is that his love is priceless. It is priceless. Now, I don't mean that it's priceless like a work of art. I mean that his love is so good, it's so pure and so true that it can't be bought. It can't be purchased. There is no price on his love. He immediately, after saying that he is the good shepherd and saying that he will lay down his life for the sheep, compares himself to the hired hand. The hired hand or the, the hireling is one who, when faced with danger, flees. He refuses to lay down his life. He is only there for the money. And money is not worth anything if you're going to lose your life to get it. And so when he sees the wolf coming and he knows the wolf is going to take those sheep, he flees very quickly. He runs. Our Lord is not like this. He doesn't help us because he's paid to do so. But he helps us because he loves us. As he says here, the hired hand doesn't care for the sheep. He cares nothing for the sheep. But Jesus does care for the sheep. He doesn't help us because he's paid to do so. He doesn't help because he gets something out of it. He loves us because he simply loves us. It's not for riches, it's not for honor, it's not for fame, it's not for love, and it's not for glory. Not any love that he gets back, not any fame that he gets back. He loves us simply because he loves us. The question of why would automatically come up. Why would he love us? Why, why does he love us this way? That question is answered all the way back in the book of Deuteronomy. When God calls his people out and is about to give them the promised land and he's worried that they're going to, in their pride, think that he is giving them the promised land because of their worth, because of their value. And in Deuteronomy 7, Moses records the word of the Lord saying this, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and shows you, for you were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you. It's perfectly circular. Why does the Lord love you? Why did he set his choice upon you? Moses says, the Lord loves you because he loves you. Because he just chose you to. His love is its own reason. He he doesn't have another reason for it. There's nothing that you did. You're not victorious. You're not wonderful. You're not mighty. You're not greater than any other nation. He simply loved you because he loved you. It is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the house of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. It is simply because he loves us. That is the kind of love that Jesus has. He doesn't love you because he gets stuff out of you. He doesn't love you because he needs you in order to increase his glory. He doesn't love you because he gets fame and riches because of it. He is not the hired hand. He loves you simply because he loves you. Friends, we, we should imitate this kind of love for one another. We, we are not just here to commend Jesus for what he, he has done. That's true. We ought to. But we also ought to require it out of our shepherds. You ought to require it out of your pastors to love you and to care for you. And you ought to require it out of one another. Listen, there's a beautiful picture of what it means to be a hired hand given to us at two separate places in the book of Philippians. In Philippians 2, Verses 19 through 21, we have Timothy being presented before the Philippian church as one who is not a hired hand, as one who clearly loves them and cares for them. Paul, writing from prison, says this to the church at Philippi. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered of news from you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, For they all seek their own interests, 
not those of Jesus Christ. They all might do that. All the people that Paul could send, he says all of them seem to be seeking their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ, but Timothy does not. Timothy is not one who seeks the the interest of himself over the interest of Christ and his church. Timothy seeks your welfare. He's not a hired hand. A hired hand seeks their own before they seek the good of Christ. A hired hand seeks what is in their best interest before they seek what is good for the church of Jesus Christ. Not Timothy, though. Timothy seeks what is good for you. Who are these sort of people who look out for their own interest? Interestingly, Paul gives an account of them all the way back in chapter 1 of the book of Philippians. When in prison, he's writing to the church and he wants to explain that it seems like me being in prison would be a bad thing for the proclamation of the gospel because I was the apostle who was sent out and I should be the one preaching the gospel to the nations, but I'm not anymore. And it might seem like that puts a cap on the gospel going out, but he says, no, it's actually really advantageous for the gospel. And he says this, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. It's an amazing statement. People are looking at Paul being in prison and they're saying, ha, now we can go preach the gospel and we can be known as famous and we can be known as the the apostle to the Gentiles. We can be known as great and good because Paul's being sidelined here. So there is room to take up the vacuum of Paul not being on the stage anymore. So let's go out, let's preach Christ so that we can make a name for ourselves. And Paul amazingly says, that's awesome. Preach Christ. Now, I don't think what he thinks there is that it's awesome that they don't have the right motives in it. But he is grateful that his being taken away from the scene has made other people come in to preach the gospel, even if their motives are wrong. But they are nothing less than hirelings. They're nothing less than people who only preach the gospel out of their own commitment to it, out of their own award from it. We must do better than this. Do we love others just because we get back from them? Do you love other people in this room that you have covenanted with simply because you get stuff out of that? Friends, pagans love like that. People in the world love like that. That is not the kind of love that we have been called to. We can do better than this. We can look also not only to our own interest, but to the interest of others and specifically to the interest of Jesus Christ. There's a wonderful application of this from Augustine where he writes this. Who is this hireling? Who is this this hired hand? What does he look like? He says, he is the one who does not venture plainly to rebuke an offender. Look, someone or other has sinned, grievously sinned. He ought to be rebuked, to be excommunicated. But once excommunicated, he will turn into an enemy. He'll hatch plots and he'll do all the injury he can. At present... The one who seeks his own things, not the things that are Jesus Christ, in order to not lose what he follows after, the advantages of human friendship, and incur the annoyances of human enmity, keep, keeps quiet and does not administer rebuke. He says he won't confront him because he knows that the minute that he confronts that man, that man, even if he's rebuked and taken out of the church, is going to turn on him and he's going to cause him all kinds of problems. And so Augustine says, that kind of man, that one who has been hired, 
because he only seeks his own interest, not the interest of the sheep, not the, even the interest of the man, to keep himself from, he calls it annoyances, which is great. It's not even major things, it's just annoyances. He says he won't confront him in his sin. See, he goes on, the wolf has caught a sheep by the throat. The devil has enticed a believer into adultery. You hold your peace. You utter no reproof. Oh, hireling, you have seen the wolf coming and you fled. Perhaps, he answers and says, see, I am here. I have not fled. You have fled because you have been silent and you have been silent because you've been afraid. Friends, this is the way that Satan often works. He will catch someone in a sin. He will present somebody in sin. And that sin will destroy the people who are caught in it. That sin might scatter the rest of the people around there, just as Jesus says in these verses. And what Augustine is saying is, not only the shepherds, but the people of God have to be the ones who stand aside and are willing to put up with the annoyances, are willing to put up with the enmity of people outside in order to scatter or in order to keep from scattering the people of God. They must be willing to come and rebuke an offender because we care for the sheep. We won't run in fear. We will simply act in love. We do this because Jesus' love is priceless. He is not looking out for his own, but rather he is looking to the interest of others. So ought we. But secondly, his love is personal. Jesus, in verse 14, starts to speak of the knowledge that the sheep have of him and that he has of the sheep. And anyone who's ever owned an animal knows how this works. If you own an animal, you know what their temperament is like. You know what annoys them, what riles them up, what makes them happy, what settles them back down. This is part of what makes him a good shepherd. He knows his sheep, and his sheep know him. Friend, he knows where you're weak. He knows where you are tempted. He knows what scares you. He knows what it will pull you away. He knows what causes you to look elsewhere for shelter and food. And he knows that when you are tempted in such a way, you will run from him. And so because of this, because he is the good shepherd and the fact that he loves you, he is able to keep you secure. Listen, his knowledge and his love must work together. If he didn't know these things, if he didn't know his sheep, he might love them, but not know how to care for them, not know how to protect them, At best, his love would simply be an attempt at security, an attempt at comfort, without any assurance thereof. If he had all the knowledge in the world, but he had not love, then his comfort and his care would simply be theoretical, without the desire to actually put it in place. But Jesus has both the knowledge of his sheep and the love of his sheep. And therefore, you are assured of your comfort. You are assured of your security before him. He knows what you can handle. He knows what temptations will overcome you. He knows what you can endure. And he only puts those things in front of you. He also knows how to defend you and how to spare you from the wolf. But there's more to it than just that. The fact that he dies for the sheep is closely linked to the sheep knowing him. Turn again to look in verses 14 and 15. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. The fact that he lays down his life for the sheep is closely tied into his knowledge of the Father, his love of the Father, as we will see, but also his knowledge of the sheep. He knows you. Jesus didn't just die for a collective group the way a soldier might die for his country. Jesus didn't die for his people in general. But as he's already said, the shepherd calls them out by name. He died for you. 
He died for you. He suffered for you. He took away your sins. Galatians 2.20, Paul, in one of the only passages that he speaks this personally, as a matter of fact, this is the only verse in all of Paul's epistles where he speaks quite as clearly of Christ dying for him as he does here. Nowhere else does he sound like this. He says this in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Not gave himself generally for the church, which is what Paul often says, which is what Paul often implies when he talks about Christ dying. It is for a large number of people, but Paul is being very clear here. Christ didn't just die for a large number of people like a soldier dies for his country. Christ died for me, friend. Christ died for you. Not for your kind of person, He didn't die for your group or your tribe. He died for you. This knowledge is incredibly personal. He even compares this sort of knowledge to the knowledge that he has of the Father and the Father has of him. It's not the knowledge of a book. It's the knowledge of intimacy, of knowing deep, dark secrets of them and loving them anyway. This is the type of knowledge we should want to have of Christ. Not of deep, dark secrets and loving him anyways, but of his glory and his beauty, of knowing him deeply and fully. Just as Christ knows the Father fully and so devotes himself in obedience to all that the Father calls him to, so we, knowing Christ fully, should devote ourselves and submit ourselves to his authority in all that we say and do. That is knowledge that makes its way into our lives and shows how personal and wonderful it is. It is personal because he's laid down his life for us. And so we ought to be very thankful because your Savior is personal. He calls you out by name. He knows you. Listen, he has died as an example. But it can't just be an example here. A sacrifice has to be personal. It has to be intimate. Again, he died for you. Now, where this metaphor might break down, and it's going to break down in just a little bit, Jesus is going to almost depart fully from the metaphor as he starts to talk about his, the Father's love for him and dying and being raised again. He will almost depart fully from the metaphor, but here the metaphor makes a ton of sense. Shepherds don't lay down their lives for the sheep as an example for the sheep. He doesn't throw himself into the dangerous path of an animal just to show and demonstrate his acting ability to to garner awards or to somehow live his life as an example simply because he let a bear do unspeakable things to him. That's not how shepherds work. They don't lay down their lives like that. They lay down their lives not as an example but because the sheep are in danger. He dies instead of them. That's the idea. That's not an example. The sheep are not helped by an example. The sheep are helped by a sacrifice. His love is priceless. His love is personal. But his love is also particular. The sheep are his sheep. Jesus dies for his sheep. He doesn't here die for all of the sheep. It is clear that those who are his sheep are the ones that he dies for. He leads his sheep out of the pen. It's his sheep that he lays his life down for because only outside of the pen in the pasture lands are the wolves even a danger. It's the sheep that he has called out that he dies for. 
And what we don't mean by this is that God somehow doesn't love the whole world. It's clearly not the case. Matthew 5, 44 and 45. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. The mere fact that the sun came up today is evidence that God loves all of the world. Even Michigan, where there's almost no sun this time of year. It is clear evidence that he loves everybody. And he loves them with passion. And he loves them with compassion. God loves the world full stop. But that does not mean that he loves the world and that he loves those of the world who are not his own sheep in the same way or with nearly the same intensity by which he loves his sheep. Jesus lays down his life for his sheep. They know his voice. They follow him. He's not laying his life down for the sheep everywhere. This is the very thing that kind of typifies the Old Testament sacrifices. When people brought sacrifices, they brought it for themselves. Or even on the Day of Atonement, when sacrifice was being made for the entire nation, it was only being made for the nation of Israel, those who had faith in God. It wasn't applicable to the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. It wasn't applicable for the Babylonians or the Egyptians. It wasn't worthy for them. It wasn't working for them. It didn't help them. It helped those who had faith in God. So too it is with Jesus. As in anyone, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But who will call on the name of the Lord? Those who know his voice and those who follow him, who are led out by him. Those are the sheep that he dies for. And while his love is particular, though, that is also balanced and very carefully here by the fact that his love is planetary. I do mean that in sense of weightiness and in girth. He is, his love is huge, but I mean it more specifically in the fact that his love is for all. He says very clearly in verse 16, I have sheep in other pens. I have sheep in other folds. This is the same word in verse 16, other sheep that are not of this fold, that comes in the first verse where he talks about the sheepfold. He's talking about, I have sheep in other, in other enclosures out there. It's clear, I think, from the metaphor, that this enclosure must be an enclosure that keeps the Jewish people in. They are the Jews. And what Jesus is saying is, I am going to call out my people from amongst the Jews. As Paul would say, not every Israelite is actually an Israelite. Not every Jewish person is an actual Jewish person, but one who has been circumcised in the heart, one who has been called out by Jesus. He says, I will call out my people from this sheep pen. But he also says, there's other pens. If this sheep pen is the Jews, make it be known very, very clearly. The Jews thought of the world in two groups. There were Jewish people and there were Gentiles. There was Jewish people and there was everyone else. When Jesus looks at them and he says, I'm going to go and get sheep from other pens, what he means is I have people to save from the Gentiles as well. I will call them to be mine. No doubt Jesus foresees his sacrifice being for all the sheep, including sheep that aren't in this pen of the Jews. This is you and me, most likely. So let's be clear. Jesus' sacrifice was for his sheep for all of time, but not for all sheep, but those who belong to him from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. Don't think that this is some sort of 
minute group either. There is a multitude of which no one can number standing around the throne. Listen to Revelation 7. I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God on the throne, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. The cry of Jesus Christ as Savior goes out to all people. And those who are his sheep hear his voice and come out. And that is not a small number. It is a multitude that no one can number. Jesus' love is priceless, it's personal, it's particular, it's planetary, and it is, lastly, permanent. This is the trickiest part of these verses. Verses 17 and 18. In two places, Jesus links his laying down of his life for the sheep with his knowledge and love of the Father. In verse 15, which is written that just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and then there is this unfortunate in my version of the ESV semicolon, which ought not be there. That, that implies that there's a break here. There's just no break there. Other versions do much worse things by simply setting this aside as a separate comment, but it, it's not a separate sentence that's begun there. It's linked. Just as I know my Father, my Father knows me, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 17 does something similar to this. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. We could view verse 17 as though it's implying some sort of conditional love. Why does God the Father love the Son? God the Father loves the Son because he lays down his life for the sheep. The implication being that there is some condition for the Son to meet in order to garner the Father's love. That the Father wouldn't love the Son if he didn't lay down his life, but the Son does lay down his life, therefore the Father does love him. This is precisely the opposite of what we have said is true of God's people. He loves them somewhat unconditionally. He chose them unconditionally. There was no condition for them to meet. He simply loved them because he loved them. Is that what Jesus is saying here? That the Father loves him conditionally as long as he lays down his life for the sheep? I don't think that that's even a possibility. The Father might love us conditionally. And there are many places in the Bible that actually speak toward that. But it never speaks that way of the Father and the Son. Rather, what is incredibly important for us to see is that in verse 17, the love of the Father is not linked just, just to the death of the Son, but also to his resurrection. We can get so focused on the reason the Father loves him is because he lays down his life that we can miss the fact that there's a clause connected directly to it that's dependent upon it, which can consists of the entirety of the reason. He doesn't just love him because he lays down his life. He loves him because he lays down his life so that the purpose of that being that he would take it up again. Both things matter, and it makes a huge difference. Isn't the basic problem of sin, according to Paul, according to Scripture, is seeing and honoring God's glory. Sin is simply not honoring his law as good. Sin is not seeing his attributes as beautiful. Sin is not knowing his actions as righteous. Sin is not believing that his words are true. Sin is not submitting to God's power. Sin is treating his love as insufficient. Sin is not trusting his justice. So Jesus 
gives God glory and honor by being sinless, by doing all these things, by honoring God's law as good, by seeing his attributes as beautiful, by knowing his actions as righteous, by believing that everything he does is good and true, by believing in his promises, by submitting to his power, by treating his love as sufficient for all things, and by trusting his justice. And so Jesus gives God glory and honor and shines forth the glory and honor of God by doing all these things. Is God worthy of glory and honor? Yes, he is worthy of even laying down your life for. He is worthy of trusting even as you put your life down on the cross. He is worthy of that. This is the whole point of Jesus being obedient to the point of death and even death on a cross. That he is obedient to God the Father because God the Father is worthy of being obedient too. Even if it costs you your life, he is worthy of it. So Peter says, he entrusts himself to the one who judges justly. Jesus knew that the word of God was good. Jesus knew that the plan of God was good. And so he lays his life down for it. To say that this is anything but love misreads the entire gospel of John. Jesus laying down his life because the Father has commanded him to do so as an act of love. Listen to these short smattering of verses from the end of chapter 14 and the beginning of 15. John 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14, 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. John 14, 31. I do as the Father commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. John 15, 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Jesus demonstrates, shows his love for God the Father by obeying him and laying down his life, even as God has sent him into the world for this. But that is only half of the story. God also calls for him not simply to lay down his life, but to take it back up again. That is the charge that Jesus talks about at the end. This charge I have received from my Father. This charge being both to lay down my life and to take it back up again. God loves the Son because Jesus dies, yes, but God also loves the Son because he tells him to take his life back up. Both are true. Jesus is willing to give everything for the Father's glory. He will exhaust his life to prove that the Father is worthy. And the Father gives his Son honor and victory by raising him from the grave and justifying him before every, every eye that could lay, weight, lay sight on the fact that he has come up from the dead. And by every time the gospel being preached that Jesus Christ has come up from the dead, the Father shows that the Son is worthy of glory and honor and might and power because he was a lamb who was slain but is raised to new life. The Father shows his love and receives the love of Christ. Christ shows his love and receives the Father's love. In the act of sacrificing himself for the sheep, then, we have this wonderful and beautiful look into the very nature of God loving himself as Trinity. The working of the cross was simply a way for the beauty of the Trinity's love to shine forward. God loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father, and this is best shown to us in the death and the resurrection of the Son. Yes, the Son loves you. Yes, he does, very much. He loves you because he lays down his life for you. But he does so because he loves the Father more. Yes, the Father loves you. That is why he has sent his son to rescue you. But he does so to demonstrate the son's glory and honor and worth. Our entire redemption 
all of it, is something of, of a canvas for God to paint a picture of how much he loves himself, of the Father to love the Son and the Son to love the Father. It is a picture that shows us, a self-portrait that shows us how deep his love is for himself. It's like, to switch metaphors, a tidal wave that comes and takes over us. And we are caught up in it. So he, he does indeed love us. We are caught up in it. But that tidal wave is God's love for himself. And it's a demonstration of God's love for himself. How better could he demonstrate how much he loves himself? How better could the son demonstrate a love for the father? And by laying down his life, by doing what the Father has commanded him to do, even to the point of death and death on a cross. How much could the Father show how he loves the Son, but by raising him from the dead and giving him the name by which every other name is below. Every other name is beneath. His name is above all other names, and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. There is no other way for God to show us how beautifully and perfectly he loves himself. This is better news for you than you can imagine. Because this, this is what makes God's love for you permanent. Because the Bible is ripe with the fact that God's love is somewhat conditional. But friend, if you have died in Christ, if you have been raised with Christ, if you find yourself in Christ, if you are going to say along with Paul, I have been crucified with Christ. When God looks at you, if he knows that you are in Christ, then he loves you in a way that will never, ever leave. Because he doesn't love his son conditionally. And therefore, anyone who is in his son will never be loved conditionally. It is permanent and it is sealed. If you are in Christ, then the love of the Father will never leave you. The Father will always guard and protect you. So long as you are in Christ, the Father could love nothing more. So, friends, know that Jesus is your good shepherd and know that he loves you. He is not some cheap hired hand who is going to leave you at the first sign of distress when the wolves come around and the bears show their claws, who is going to run for the hills, but he will stand and he will protect you. He will protect his sheep because they are his. He knows them personally. He knows you individually. He calls you out by name. And he loves you particularly. And don't think that this love is therefore only for some sort of minute amount of people. God has an immense love and he has many people and many sheep pens that he is calling out even now from people around the world who have never heard the name of Jesus Christ, he is calling them forward to himself. His love is both planetary. There are legions who will know him, both Jew and Gentile, Greek and barbarian, wise and foolish, free and slave. But ultimately, know that the work of redemption was never, ever fully and totally about us. We are caught up in it in a scheme that is larger than us, in a plan that is bigger than us, in a meaning that it goes far beyond the meaning of our lives. In Ezekiel 36, just two chapters after Ezekiel has revealed that God is going to take the sheep away from the shepherds who are 
flogging them, the shepherds who are abusing them, the shepherds who are using them for their own purposes. He says, I will take them away. In the same context, Ezekiel turns around and says this to the people of God. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord. The nations will know that I am Father, Son, and Spirit. The nations will know who I am, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Friends, he has accomplished this, and it has been proclaimed to you today. This is the great act of what Jesus Christ has done, and it is a mystery. It is a mystery that the love of the Father and the love of the Son together burning intensity forever might sweep us up in his wonderful story of giving us salvation and allowing us to stand before him, seeing his glory and his love forever and ever. It is a wondrous mystery that through the cross, a device meant for evil, planned by evil, carried out by evil people against the author of life, as men sought to destroy the only means of salvation that they had, that through all of those things, that the love of God for himself would be truly seen and known. That is a mystery, and friend, that is a mystery to cling to. For it is in that that you can hear the call of the shepherd who loves you and lays down his life for you. Let's pray. Father, whatever evils may surround us, whatever ills might seem to prevail upon us, whatever troubles await us, let us cling to this and this alone. Jesus has laid down his life for us that he may take it back up again and through this to give us new lives in him. These present sufferings may be great, Father, but we confess that they are not worth comparing to what is to be revealed. Let us hold to that. Let us hold to the mystery of your great love for us. For we are wretched sinners loved by a great and majestic God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.